John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed Omnibus Addenda, Volume 27, Entry 536.AC0409, Certificate Number 42674, Goat Glands. These have been in the news a lot lately. This is going all the way back, but yeah, Goat Glands more relevant than they've ever Mm -hmm. been. There was a, I just liked this story too much to leave it out, a listener named Eric recently listened to, to listen to this show and i used the word bunkum, oh, to, des- bunkum. to describe the uh, the populist political career of the goat glands guy the quack john r brinkley and he asked me if i knew the origin of the word bunkum or you know how we use bunk to mean bs yeah. or nonsense that's bunk it's a fairly new coinage it's uh, American, 19th it, century. It's it not, sounds really old. It's not related to bunking in the sense of uh, bedding, bedding down. down or whatever else bunk has meant over the years. Bunker? Any relation to bunker? No, it's its own thing, and it is named actually for Buncombe County, North Carolina. Really? Yeah, the, the congressman from Buncombe County in the early 19th century was a Philip Felix Walker, who in the stereotyped manner of... Uh, of any of these small-town southern Matlock mm-hmm. blowhard types. Three-piece suit-wearing, cigar-chomping. Always wanted to get up and talk about how every bill would uh, be relevant to his district, whether they were or not. So, you know, they'd be discussing the Mexican-American War or some omnibus appropriations bill or whatever it is, and he'd get up there and say, well, back in Buncombe County, <laughs> and I got to give my speech for Buncombe for, yep. his, for his constituents. And all the senators hated these pointless, time-wasting tirades. And to them, the word bunkum came to mean meaningless political claptrap. Wow. And hence shortened to bunk. And the funny thing is, in this episode, we mentioned it in reference to this North Carolina quack, John R. Brinkley, who was born just 30 miles away from Buncombe County. Aren't we something? Who knew? That's Uh, wonderful. Accidentally, we were geographically correct in ascribing it to Buncombe. Eric, by the way, also notes that he is pro-outro music, and we did have an outpouring of support for the outro music 
because in the in the most recent addenda, do you remember this? Yeah, someone complained about the kind of the the creepy fingernails on the chalkboard vibe of the. But I felt like we theremin. put we put some kind of low pass filter on it that took some of the screechy away, didn't we? Or at least that's what we talked to Mark Miles about. Is that true? Did you mention it to him? I did. I said, oh. "Can we take some of the?" And did just, he did he do it? Just just smooth some of the high end. He said. That he would. Interesting. Let's let's hear back from yeah, viewers. We, who is the original correspondent who was complaining about the theremin sound? And is it better now? Is it any better now? And if other people would like to say that it's gotten worse, and if there's more of you, we will put it back. We'll put the high back and screw that one guy. Well, one thing that people may not know about Mark Miles is that in addition to being a, a podcast editor, he's also a... Um, World-class theremin player. A uh, uh, recording engineer. Oh, is that true? So he does music as well. I, so he has a... Even I didn't know that, Yeah, he John. has a, a developed ear. Entry 928.IS0117. Certificate number 24126. The Phantom of New Guinea. This is also an older show, but somebody who just caught up with it had a explanation for a question we asked... During that entry, which is, why is the Babadook a queer icon? Why and is the Babadook a queer icon? I didn't know. You theorized that it was because of the the guest, uh, the unfortunate guest at the wine drinking party dressed as the Babadook. Right. If you've seen that photo. Is the, the greatest, <laughs> right? But I'm, but I'm guessing they're telling me that, no, it's something else. No, as middle-aged uh, straight white people, we did not know the answer to this. But uh, Yael, I hope I'm saying their name right, uh, sent us the— is, is she related to Superman? Or are they related to Superman? They are not. I believe it's a. It's generally a Hebrew name, right? Oh, Yael, right? Yael. It's like um, I think it's. Is Roman, Jor- it's is, Romanized with a J. Is Jor El also a Hebrew name? Yes. Oh. Superman's a Jewish immigrant. That's that's actually the a lot of the subtext of the story. I think that's isn't that right? Jerry Siegel is Jewish, and he's a he rockets to uh to this country from a distant land. Boy, we need to do an omnibus on that. Pronto on whether or not Superman is circumcised. Whether or not Superman is a is, is a is an allegory for Jewish immigration or for su- survival of the Holocaust. That's what the implication of that is. No, because right? it would have been 39. Um, it was early, but it might have been, it might have been anti European anti Semitism. Yeah. Right. Um, no, Yael is enough of a uh, internet queer historian to remember the origin of the Babadook as a LGBT icon. It dates back to 2016. When somebody on Tumblr noticed that Netflix had inadvertently, I believe, put the Babadook in their list of LGBT movies. Just accidentally, just it was accidentally. an algorithm problem. So you'd just be scrolling through <laughs> and it's like, here's a documentary about Harvey Milk. Here's uh, Bound by with Gina Gershon. Here's, wait, the Babadook? It was just an algorithmic mistake, but then the screenshot went viral. And it actually became, yeah. uh, wow. And according to Yael, it's kind of a print the legend kind of a thing. Kind of like how now it's commonly understood that Judy Garland's death was connected to the Stonewall riots, even though no one at the time thought that and, in fact, would have disputed it. Um, you know, when the legend becomes fact, you print the legend. So there, that is the answer as to why. I hope we didn't just out the Babadook. No, I think that's uh, wonderful. And it sounds like Yael is a, an internet historian, if nothing else. Amateur internet historian. I love people that know the internet as though it, <laughs> right. it is like a thing, like a like a a, a a historical era. There was a super helpful Twitter thread where people would be like, you post the meme and I'll tell you what it's from. And there were all kinds of memes that I had never seen. And they were like, 
This is actually an instructional video. This is an episode of uh, Chicago Hope. People this knew is it a, that well. Yeah, and, and it was just one person who was like very good at this and like had right. kind of made it their study. Like, what's what's this meme from? I learned a lot that day. Imagine the doctoral thesis that will come from that. Most of the other correspondence we had about this episode was about uh, our mentioning of John Denver mm. as an international phenomenon. I think as we talked more about this in the December Addenda show. Mm-hmm. We had talked about how uh, you know he's kind of been a his, particularly "Take Me Home, Country Roads" has been appropriated by Asia. You sent me that link to Toots and the Maytals doing "Take Me Home, Country Roads," and you said, "I apologize for sending you reggae," which is I always say that to someone when I am forced to send them reggae. Yeah, it definitely felt like being Rick rolled. Sorry if this offends reggae rolled, but then. It's an amazing version. It's really good. It's so good. Even as not a reggae fan, you can't not like. And Toots is so good, and you just hear the you hear his spirit in it. If you don't know the version of their version of, uh, I mean, I mean, it's, it's foundational, right? Didn't didn't he coin the word reggae? Yeah. It's a uh, it's a cover of Take Me Home Country Roads that uses. Jamaican place names yeah. instead of West Virginian ones. West Jamaica. Which honestly is a place you'd be more nostalgic for than West Virginia, uh, probably. Well, John Denver wasn't from West Virginia either, so. That's true. He wasn't from Jamaica, as far as I know. <laughs> his, his nostalgia was ginned up. Do you think he ever wore one of those big Rasta hats with the fake dreadlocks? Oh, I doubt it. Probably not, right? He had iconic hair. But when I heard, listened to that reggae version, I realized that's the urtext for that, um, am I going to say his name wrong? Uh, is... Kamaka wa, wa, what's his name? Kamaka wa wa ole or something? The you know the the big Hawaiian guy that did that somewhere over the rainbow cover. Oh right, that went crazy. Oh, I yeah. got it wrong. Is Kamaka we wa ole mm-hmm. that for that album that has somewhere over the rainbow on it, and therefore you know the little kind of ukulele late night in the studio jam of over the rainbow sold a bajillion copies on it the strength did. of that. It did it was huge. showing up in TV finales and stuff. But on that record, there is a cover of Take Me Home Country Roads, kind of reggae-styled, like a lot of island music is, uh, replacing the place names in the original with Hawaiian place names. That's sweet. So it's like Almost Heaven, West Makaha, instead of West Jamaica or West Virginia. And we actually have heard from multiple people saying that, you know, the reason why John Denver and that song are popular in Asia is because that song is universally beloved. Patrick said... Oh, first of all, it was um, it was Michael who sent us the reggae song. Yeah, and then Patrick says that uh, a couple years ago, he was in Zagreb at some kind of diplomatic meeting of the former the states of the former Yugoslavia. So lots of bad feelings, as you do, still exist. Lots right. of minefields, lots of uh, tricky negotiations of uh, lots of touchy diplomats. They had a group dinner one night, and they hired an entertainer who could play Croat, Serb, Albanian, Montenegrin, and Kosovan music, he says, just to cover all the bases. But can he do country roads? The coordinator, at the beginning of the night, pulled the Americans aside to say that I didn't—sorry, I I didn't ask this guy if he could play American music, but he does know one song, (laughs) and the song was Take Me Home Country Roads, and he said everybody knew it. Like, the rest of that night, only the Croats knew the Croatian songs, only the Kosovans knew the Kosovar songs— but everybody knew every word to Take Me Home Country Roads, and a sing-along emerged. Believe it. And the singer didn't speak any English. He had learned John Denver phonetically, of course. But it really made me think that um, something about John Denver's sunny, utopian 1970s vision made him like 
a perfect dream child for a future that could have been, you know, and his premature death in that plane crash is what doomed us to the terrible reality we're in now. Like if John Denver was still here, maybe things wouldn't be like this. I went to a country Western bar in Belgium one time uh, that was kind of out in the sticks and there was a bar band there playing American country music and they did this spot on rendition of Waylon Jennings's theme music to the <laughs> Dukes of Hazzard. The Dukes of Hazzard. <laughs> and after the show, I went up and was like, that was the best version of the Dukes of Hazzard theme I've ever heard. And uh, the band spoke no English at all. What? None. So American music brings joy to people. Do you think it takes a ton of work to learn the Dukes of Hazzard theme phonetically? Or do you think it just, it just embeds itself in your brain? You know, you hear about actors who get, you know, foreign actors who get cast to play roles in American movies, learning their lines phonetically. But usually they sound like they have just learned their lines phonetically. Well, yeah, but I think, you know, music, you hear it, they probably listen to the Dukes of Hazard theme 400 times. I mean, I can sing Prison Colon Ensign Cusel, and th- those aren't actual words. It's true. Right? Or Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. You know, yeah. Any number of children's songs are just nonsense syllables, and you have no problem right. sponging it's those up. It's called Amazing Prison Colon Ensign Cusel. Entry 1164.LV2716. Certificate number 41467. Single taxers. These are still older shows, but this was a fantastic story from a listener named Ryan. This was the show about uh, Henry George, the economic philosopher who thought that all taxes should be abolished except for uh, tax on land, on real estate ownership, right. which, which would be taxed at a high enough rate that finally the landlords are yeah. I'll take it on the chin. Stick it to the landlords. Ryan had a plan. He discovered Omnibus late in 2000. 21. Well, that's pretty recently. I'm sorry. He discovered it late in 2020. There we go. Okay. He's been with us a while. But he decided he was going to listen to every show in 2021. And keep in mind, there were upwards of 400 shows by that point. Right. So he listened to all 400 omnibuses, Omnibi, in the calendar year 2021. That's killer. It's more than one a day. It is. Um, But he made it just in time with a bit of a... With a bit of a binge. I'm sure that he listened to three or four in a row at a time, you know, like most, most of the time. He, he, nobody's going to sit and listen to one a day. But can you, I mean, they're, they're our shows. I know. I don't know I'm how gonna, many, how many would you listen to in a row? I wish they were our shows. They're our 15 minute shows. Mine are our shows. <laughs> they are never. <laughs> they are never. You have this fantasy that your shows are short and mine are long. It's not true. Although I do have the longest show. Please provide us the math. Yes, yeah, if you let can, us know the truth. If you can go down and average every one of our shows separate from one another, who has the longer shows? But Ryan had a killer story about the single tax uh, movement from his own family tree. He found himself recently the executor for the estate of his wife's grandfather, who had died in his 90s. Um, speaking of West Virginia, he lived in rural West Virginia, but... Hard to stereotype. He was a lifelong pacifist who nevertheless had played clarinet in the Army Field Band for 20 years. Mm-hmm. He was a liberal despite his neighbors. He built his own house in the 70s and carried around paperback copies of 12 Years a Slave, which he would hand to anyone he saw with a 
Confederate flag on their bumper sticker. How many copies of 12 Years a Slave did he have to carry he around? He must have been keeping that book in print because that was, <laughs> I mean, uh, that was a kind of a niche title before the movie, right? Yeah. And also, how many Confederate flags are there in rural West Virginia? That's right. Maybe less than than now. But he was a devoted Georgist. He, you could not go to any family reunion without hearing Grandpa hold forth on the virtues of the single tax. He had a West Virginia vanity plate that read single tax. And in fact, he purchased 77 acres of rural West Virginia hilltop sight unseen in hopes of building a, a single tax utopia like the ones we mentioned on the show that had been attempted in in uh, D- Delaware, planned communities basically in Delaware and, and elsewhere. If you're trying to avoid being characterized as a crank by your neighbors, do not have the word tax in your personalized license plate. His granddaughter's husband, Ryan, tells us that... Um, Despite, the, for, for his entire life, for decades and decades, he never really understood that um, Henry George's economic theories do not work if nobody wants your land. If nobody wants to live on 77 acres of rural West Virginia, uh, an hour from the nearest McDonald's in, he says, one of West Virginia's smallest, fastest shrinking counties. The county itself is shrinking. Yeah, well, wow. the, the population, one oh, would okay. assume, unless, say. unless other nearby counties are uh, are advancing on it inexorably. The last 3,000 people in the county are all crowded onto a manhole cover as the borders shrink. So our, our listener takes over, um, takes over Grandpa's estate just to find this crazy situation that he created a trust corporation just to try to advertise these land parcels. Oh, wait. So they inherited this land, but it doesn't belong to them? Even better. He'd assigned a board of directors of, of well-known Georgist economists who were not aware that they had been selected for this honor to administer the to, to help administer the, the oh, land. Oh, that's sweet, but um, also very cranky. People he'd met at <laughs> people he'd met at single tax conferences over the years. Anyway, so he said it was a just a, a bizarre few years untangling. All these uh, legal challenges to to his Georgist grandfather, <laughs> grandfather-in-law, all the legal entanglements. I mean, I imagine that one thing to do would just be to carry on his legacy. <laughs> just keep trying to find somebody. Well, he does say, in a final ironic confirmation of all that Grandpa found wrong with the U.S. land tax system, the eventual buyer did get the land for the for a great bargain and paid nothing for the improvements on it. Oh. So it's exactly what Henry George would have predicted. Entry 191.PR2321, certificate number 13321, cask 263. This is not anyone complaining about uh, our whiskey uh, knowledge. Did you have to open a separate uh, email address just to handle all the whiskey distillers? Please write to that- whiskey complaints <laughs> at... <laughs> That's not how you make single cask whiskey. Uh, no, in this case, you you remember you mentioned the uh, the brewery that produces bottles inside squirrel carcasses, like yes. taxidermied squirrel beer. Yes. Um, we got a note from CJ, who actually was a brewer for that company, and has he sends over pictures of him drinking from the mouth of the squirrel and cuddling them. He he apparently. Despite mm-hmm. the fact that you're holding a dead squirrel, he finds it to be like a, a, a cuddly stuffed animal vibe and not a creepy Tim Burton vibe. <laughs> sure, like a, like a rabbit's foot, except an entire squirrel. Exactly. But the fact that its mouth is wide open 
more open than it could ever have been in life, and the lip of the bottle is emerging. Yeah, it it, it kind of dulls the fun a bit. It, yeah, it's like the it's like the an alien is is <laughs> right. exploding out of its guts. If nothing else, it really reminds you the squirrel does not want to be here. Yeah, right. Um, but it's not cuddly at all. As a word of caution, we should teach the controversy here. He also wants us to know that the BrewDog, the company responsible for the squirrels, actually has kind of a checkered history and has treated employees terribly hmm. and refers us to the open letter on punkswithpurpose.org. Uh, no, thanks. If you, want to see a, <laughs> or if you want to see a rundown of all the employee complaints about no, I'll skip it. squirrel corpse uh, beer incorporated. How many squirrel corpses? I mean, what's happening to a, the squirrel meat B where are they getting all these squirrels? Is this a limited run or is every bottle out of this factory inside of a dead squirrel? Can you get like a six pack where it's like just squirrel <laughs> against squirrel against squirrel? <laughs> what was that? What was that terrible movie where the, where the people were sewed together? The human squirrel. The Herman, yeah. The Herman squirrel. The Herman centipede. Mm. Herman? Why did you say Herman? <laughs> you said Herman. The human centipede. Yeah, so it's the human squirrelipede, or except it's not human. It's the squirrel and squirrel and squirrelipede. It's a, you think they're like sausage links? Yeah, on right. A chain? <laughs> except instead of casings, they're all inside squirrel carcasses. Or you know, like they're, they're like tail, tail to tail to front, so it's like they're in a conga line. Da, 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 da. Hey. Entry 671.LK2270, Certificate 30782, The Jefferson Bible. Got an interesting note on this show from Alex, who I believe is the one who suggested the Public Universal Friend show, Mm -hmm. although he did so under a weird pseudonym, so I guess we have now outed you, Alex. Sorry. Sorry, Alex. Um, What was that all about anyway? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about your criminal record in several states. Uh, he sent us the first, the full title of, uh, Thomas Jefferson's rejiggering of the gospels. Remember he, uh, he yeah. did so with a, a deist point of view in order to make, um, Jesus a preacher instead of a miracle or a teacher, a moral teacher instead of a miracle doer. Did we consider the fact that the Jefferson Bible could be the founding document of Jefferson state? The state of Jefferson? Yeah. Do people in the state of Jefferson read the Jefferson Bible? It seems like they ought to. Well, I mean, do any social conservatives read the Bible anymore? Probably not. Oh, right. They have it all memorized. <laughs> yeah, they, they know it all so They well. know every word of the Bible and the U.S. Constitution, if you ask them. I just think they would be a little, they would not be friendly to a version of the Bible that strips out Jesus's divinity. Jesus is Even God if Thomas God Jefferson told them to do it. I mean, they love that he kept slaves, I imagine, but... Sometimes the, the Bible needs to be watered with the blood of patriots. <laughs> well, that's an inter- it's interesting you should say that because Alex points out an alternate theory of what Jefferson was trying to accomplish with his Bible. Here's the first draft. According to the first draft of the document, here's the full title. The philosophy of Jesus of Nazareth, extracted from the account of his life and doctrines as given by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, being an abridgment of the New Testament, and here's the surprising part, for the use of the Indians, unembarrassed with matters of fact or faith beyond the level of their comprehensions. Yes. Now, you can see why this full title is not used much anymore. Yes. <laughs> like, in order to keep the, the anti-Native American racism out of the title. 
Well, you know, Jefferson's big project was to domesticate the American Indians. Civilize the locals. Yeah, and teach them to farm. Right. So this was part of that project, huh? Well, I mean... Don't overcomplicate it with a bunch of uh, miracles and stuff. Well, that's the thing. Like, if if he's designing this as a missionary tool to try to teach a a population of a different religion a working understanding of, of Christianity for assimilation reasons... right then let's just stick to the high-minded, easy-to-understand moral principles and who cares about the uh, the cultural stuff where he mucks around in with mangers and lepers. Well, it's so different from the Catholic way of doing it, which was to— The co- opposite. Well, or to connect the saints to local indigenous gods yeah. and say, oh, well, you know, St. Jerome is just exactly like your snake god. I wonder if he's assuming that these moral principles are so foundational that the, the the local tribes would yeah they're universal they would already understand them and be like oh you've got a guy saying all this good stuff well we believe that too yeah but, but, uh, but I don't think they are necessarily universal no. but the funny thing is you, you know you mentioned that often missionary efforts go the other way they lean heavily into the imagery and the supernatural elements yeah check out this guy he walks on water yeah look at look he's got a glowing thing on his head you, sure he, that's he must why be good. You, he must be good you worship him right nobody's like. Let's hear what he has to say and uh, evaluate him on the strengths of his argument. But Jefferson thought that was the way to go. What's interesting is that 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 that's still true of kind of the age of reason mentality that you can, if you can just find a way to explain, yeah, then people will be convinced. Come, let us reason together. Yeah, because they've because you've explained it, and you know that. It, that continues to be kind of a problem even in contemporary politics because there's all this energy on the left devoted to the idea still that you can explain. And then a president was elected on that on the strength of no, no, no. It won't be like that. I'll just reach out across yeah. the aisle, you see. No, no, no. See, if all we have to do is explain and then, you know, your your opponents are like, I'm not listening, I'm not listening, I'm not listening. And like no, explain isn't. What, what if I show you this way. graph of, of <laughs> how many unvaccinated people are in hospitals? Yeah, well, where'd you get that? The CDC. Enough said. Entry five six two jb zero four zero nine certificate number two one seven nine five. The Halifax explosion. Now I don't know if you saw this, but. Uh, you took it on the chin from Canadians a bit here. A little. I took it on the chin for, for not understanding that. that the, the chronology of... Of Canadian independence. I, I did not understand it, or I didn't understand the significance of the date. It takes a big man to admit that. Yeah. I think that your original sin was saying that Nova Scotia did not become a province until 1867. And then it when was... When, in fact, that is the date of Canadian confederation. Right. Even though there was something called Canada... That in didn't various include forms Nova Scotia for centuries before that, like right. That's their 1776 essentially. So it would be like us saying Delaware didn't become a state until 1776. Right. Um, Nova there, Scotia is a founding member of the club. I heard a lot of uh, Canadian hyena laughing at me, but it all seemed in good in good spirits. No, I mean the Canadians are going to be nothing if not polite and helpful. They just think if they could explain it to Americans. Yeah, that's right. If they could just explain <laughs> Can we just explain their history? that Nova Scotia has always been a part of the Confederation of Canada from its birth date. It's not a date that we think of in the United States. I'm sure in Canada they have heard of 1776. We do not... Maybe they need a catchy musical called 1867. Yeah. In which delegates from... sixty-seven From four original provinces put aside their differences and... 
decide to make Schitt's Creek. We were busy mopping up after the Civil War and probably had our minds elsewhere. We didn't even notice, really. Yeah. Uh, we were carpetbagging. That's what we were doing. <laughs> so much carpetbagging. So other than that, so, what other wonderful things did they say? So we heard from Michael, Sharla, Claire, etc. on that. But several of them mentioned how well they know one particular Halifax explosion story we did not mention because it was part of a Heritage Minute. And I, I regret to say this led to me having to understand what heritage minutes are. Is this a uh, is this one of those like the more you know kind exactly. of exactly? It's a television PSA full of uh, stories from Canadian history, and so far as that's a thing, yeah. that is part a big part of the nostalgic childhood of many Canadians. Eighteen seventy seven six all the way back to the late eighteen sixties. Yeah, they didn't have carpet bags then. <laughs> <laughs> they were busy making a making a confederation. They were making. They had a dominion to get to. Yeah, they were they were out here trying to start wars over pigs. The uh, apparently, so, so apparently there was this a story a, that everyone in Canada knows that I didn't know. And to, and to them, it, it's the it's the story of the, the Halifax story. explosion because this was requ- you know you know how Canadian airwaves have like CanCon requirements for yeah. how much Canadians so. For that reason, that's PSAs. why all those Canadian bands are so huge in Canada. <laughs> so you know, you got the tragically hip out of it, but on the right. flip side, you got these kind of dull uh, historical PSAs that had to keep running forever in order to keep locally produced content. Keep on the keep, keep slowing on the on the radio, and it is a pretty good story. So it's, what's the story? It's worth looking up. It's about a a, a train. Uh, controller is that the word? Or uh, oh, this is the train controller that that said. Don't bring your trains. I told that story. He's a dispatcher, I guess. Did you not tell the story? I of... told the story of the train dispatcher that said that said don't uh, uh, stop all the trains, and the trains didn't come in and didn't get blown up. His name is Vince Coleman. So this must be sometime before he was in left field for the Cardinals. Okay, uh, but he was a dispatcher who died in the. Ex- oh no, you did say you did say this. Yeah, I told the story of him. Maybe in st- insufficient detail for those who love heritage minutes. Saying don't you know stop all the trains and the trains all stopped and then he died and then he in was the explosion. Like, but I'm going to be here. Yeah, he, that's exactly right. He held held he, his he, ground. Yeah, but they're saying I didn't tell that story. So what happened? Did it, it get edited out? D- did you like say the f word a ton of times when you were telling that story? Mark Miles usually does a tremendous job of of editing our show without editing out any of our. Sparkling content. I wonder, did you do you think you misidentified him as a as some kind of a port employee and not as a not as a train dispatcher? I don't know. No, I remember distinctly. I, I totally remember this story now. Yeah. Actually. So I don't. I don't. I'm not sure what happened. It I, must have been a, a some kind of kerfuffle. If you're a Haligonian, yeah. Who think about how well you know every word of certain ads you saw as a kid? You know, yeah. like this my one, baloney has a first name. I've taught it to my daughter, and now she sings the baloney song all the she time. She now knows the first name of your baloney. She does. Um, so I see there were, uh, in addition, there were some, a few cool postscripts from all the Canadians who wrote in to complain about these things also had some interesting notes. Britt pointed out that we said the clock in Halifax still shows the time of the explosion. She says, let's she even have a date at some point in the nineties. I think she said somebody accidentally fixed it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it just started working again. No, in 1999, they replaced the clock tower, uh, save the clock tower. And so now it has two faces, one with the correct time and one that's always at 9.04, which you'd think would be more confusing. Super confusing. Man with two clocks, never sure. Especially when it's 9.03. Like, (laughs) oh, jeez, am I late? Am I not? Are they on different sides of the building? You have to like (laughs) fully run around the building to make sure you know? If I lived there, I would forget which one was right. 
we also, every day. We also had an update from Claire. I think we said that a. Uh, I think we said that a. Uh, the tree they the Christmas tree they sent to Boston every year is sent down on a train. She says that was true up until no date, but it's on a truck now. Oh, it's not a standards decline everywhere. It's not a train. She also pointed out, and this is something I'm well aware of, that the same day I was answering mail, there was a kerfuffle in Canada because on a Jeopardy show I was hosting, three American Jeopardy champions could not identify the Canadian province famous for its potatoes. Do you, in fact, know this? Um, the Canadian province famous for its potatoes. See? they To them, this is like not knowing about Idaho potatoes. But to us, it's like, uh, you're kidding it, me, right? Uh, what? You will not guess. It's Prince Edward Island. What? Exactly. How is that famous for its potatoes? They are. I, I have... Just by virtue of hosting that show, I have Canadians sending me lengthy emails about Spud Island and its long history of potato culture. What? So, anyway, uh, I stood up. Look, I stood up for the CanCon <laughs> we have on Omnibus, and and Claire says uh, Prince Edward Island is up in arms about that Jeopardy clue, and I said, I know, I've seen the, I've seen the news cycle. I mean, there are potatoes in Idaho that are bigger than Prince Edward Island in its entirety. <laughs> Yeah, you wonder how Anne of Green Gables even even got there. I told Claire, to be fair, I don't know how many people in Atlantic Canada could name the major out agricultural exports of Delaware or South Carolina. And what did she this say? This is not that? a goofy joke. She's very she's an honest Canadian. She says, I guessed tobacco and cotton, but I looked it up and it's corn and chicken. Fair enough. <laughs> corn and chicken. I wanted to know that. I was t- talking to the my, co- my the corn of Delaware. <laughs> my daughter yesterday said, I want to know more about the Civil War. And I said, well, sweetie, it's a story of tobacco and cotton. And I spent two hours. Was she already bored? Two hours telling her about tobacco and cotton. And she couldn't have been more bored. But I was like, no, no, no. You got to understand. Got to understand about these crops. Brett also uh, asked us if we knew the American equivalent of the Halifax explosion, the biggest industrial accident in American history. Is it the sugar factory one in in the Carolinas, or is it? Wasn't there a naphtha ship exploded in New York Harbor? There's something worse than both of those. Uh, ships carrying ammonium nitrate in the Gulf of Mexico, Texas City, Texas. They were docked in the port, and there was a 1947 explosion that killed 581 people, including most of the Texas City Fire Department. Whoa. I had not heard this. I haven't either. I guess we need we need heritage minutes here we in the do. U.S. We do. <laughs> I think the the uh, ammonium nitrate explosion in Texas City, Texas, would have to be pretty far down the list of topics of an American mo- uh, minutes. Brett says, "I think I will avoid Texas City." And the funny thing is, I had just seen the new movie Red Rocket, which is set in Texas City, Texas, and indeed makes it look like a place to be scrupulously avoided. <laughs> Texas- no, no offense. Texas City, Texas is not even a place. I thought it was made up when I saw the movie. I've never heard of it. It is a place. It's a Petra. It's, it's a, probably not a, a city. Am I right? I think it's a city. It's an oil processing port on the Gulf. I'm not sure how far up the coast. Texas City, Texas has a population 
Um, oh, I see. You're saying it's too small to be a city. Well, I mean, it's got it's got fifty thousand people. That's that's not nothing. Yeah, it's a plot point of the movie that they go to Galveston strip clubs. So I guess it's just outside Galveston. It's outside Galveston, right? So there we go. If we'll do a heritage minute right now, Americans, your worst industrial accident was in Texas City, and I'm sure there were some heroic tales of boldness and perseverance. Entry 1006.JE3122. Certificate number 29297. The Public Universal Friend. This happens every so often where we get a, uh, a follow-up note from a listener, uh, an addendum to the show, which answers a question I do not remember a- us asking in any form. In, in writing, do they claim that we asked? It's strongly implied. Or, you know, maybe he didn't. Like, here's somebody here's somebody who just out of the blue decided to write us this. I went to Rhode Island School of Design in the late 80s. To my Strike recollection— to my, <laughs> He could have been in Talking Heads. <laughs> to my—no, late 80s, never mind. Yeah. To my recollection, Quakers weren't overrepresented there. Now, that's a funny way to start any email, but it strongly implies that we were speculating on Quakers at RISD at some point in the— Well, I think we did because— Oh, you can reconstruct this? Yeah, because—and um, it is a Talking Heads connection. Because— David Byrne David is a Quaker. David Byrne is a Quaker ah. and went to RISD. Okay, that must be what it is. All right, so what their email goes on to say— No, that's, that's oh, it. This oh, person that's just it. wrote in to say, if you were wondering how many Quakers were at RISD in the 80s— not very many. The question is, how many Quakers were at RISD in the 70s? How many Quakers can dance on the head of a pin in a graphic design class? <laughs> we also, in that uh, entry, we talked about whether or not, if you'll recall, the public universal friend um, is a, what, a colonial-ish American? Who Post-colonial. Is a po- I can't remember the dates. Who is a, uh, you know, assigned... Uh, Raised as a young girl, but it has a medical crisis that leads to a coma that leads to the public universal friend emerging, saying that the public, the friend does not want to be referred to by any pronouns anymore. The, the friend has no gender. The friend has no name and just becomes kind of an itinerant Christian preacher of some kind. Right. Um, and I guess it's, I guess it's contemporaneously uh, colonial. It's because the the event eighteenth century the event happened the 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 um, the friend's death and rebirth happened in seventeen seventy six. Oh wow! So just as America is being borned, so too is the public universal friend. So if you ever don't want to celebrate an American Fourth of July tricentennial or something, right? Futurelings say no. It's... I am I'm celebrating <laughs> the centenary of the public universal friend. Yeah. Uh, but at some point we, we, we were talking about how languages have gendered words differently, including nouns and stuff that we don't gender in English and pronouns work differently in different languages. And you asked how pronouns work in Japan or I did. Yeah. And I think you said, well, people will tell us. Yes. And sure enough, we have two, Josh and Matthew, both fluent Japanese and maybe both living there. Uh, but not together or maybe together. No, not together. Um, both wrote in to talk about Japanese pronouns, and the answer is yes, they are gendered, but yes, they are also extremely complicated. You know, Japanese doesn't have dedicated pronouns. It has phrases like this one or your honored honorable servant, which then kind of get 
um, squished into pronoun shorthand. use. Shorthand. Yeah. yeah, into shorthand for pronoun. Um, and third-person pronouns are gendered. They have literal meanings like you know, that man or that woman. And, you know, the higher your the higher, more elevated your speech gets, the more elaborate the options available to you to refer to someone. But what's interesting is there are first person pronouns as well that are kind of gendered. Oh. Like there is an there is a the word for I, you know, the the closest thing to a gender-free word for I is apparently Watashi. But because there are other male options for Y, that actually feels a little feminine. Today Apparently, some Japanese women leave off the W to try to make it seem, to try to give them a, a pronoun of their own. Atashi. Atashi, I guess. There's a there's a way of saying I, which is boku, which is often used for a young person, specifically a male. But I've read that it can be used for a woman trying to convey a certain kind of contemporaryness or tomboyishness, mm-hmm. you know, genderlessness. Um, so even the way you say I actually convey something about gender. And I saw someone asking, hey, I'm going to Japan. I'm non-binary. How hard is that going to be to convey to people? And the answer, I guess, is... Boku or <laughs> Atashi. <laughs> I guess the answer is people will only refer to you by your name in general. Oh, I see. So, like, They won't pronoun yeah, you. Yeah, nobody will pronoun you by default, except, you know, once once they know your name. So it's a problem with, like, the, the guy behind the counter at Lawson's. You know, right. it's like hey, it's you. store staff saying, hey, you... Um, might gen- might have to gender you in the pronoun in some inaccurate way, but there are you know there are pronouns that are less gendered. It's the kind of stuff where if you would just you know reading through these long explanations from Josh and Matthew of how these pronouns work at different levels, and it's the kind of thing where you would think it was from a science fiction book, like yeah. Klingon linguistics or something. You know, it it seems too good and rich to be naturally evolved here on Earth. Like it seems like some nerd must have made it up, make it up, made it's it up too for plotted. the for for a Tolkien yeah. language or a Game of Thrones show Bible or something. But no, it's right here where we live in in beautiful Japan. Entry five five one dot ex one four zero seven, certificate number four nine four seven two. Der Grosser. So here we have a fun footnote. And then a digression, and then an invitation. Oh, I thought you were going to say, and then a super not fun footnote. <laughs> That's the rest of the show. What do you want first, the footnote, the digression, or the invitation? Let's start with the digression. Okay, this is uh, Jim giving us some Volkswagen history. Okay. He says, Jim, by the way, is I want him to, he has not sent us his, his uh, spreadsheet yet, but I guess he has twice cataloged the cars of every world head of state. Nice. He did this in 2008 and 2020. Would you care to guess? In, in both cases, the two most commonly driven cars were the same in both those years. Do you want to guess what the, wor- what the world choices of heads of state are? The automotive choices? It's one car that's the same both times and globally? Yeah, number one and two were the same in 2008 and in 2020. Well, it has to be a Mercedes. Mercedes S-Class. In 2008, 31% of the official heads of state cars were Mercedes. In 2022, it was down to 24%. Huh. Oh, that's a precipitous drop. Any guesses to what is taking up most of the slack? Because the number two car has gone from 11% to 20% in that decade. Is it the Chevy Suburban? Toyota Land Cruiser. Whoa. I know, right? That seems to indicate that what 
constitutes a head of state has declined quite a bit in that time. <laughs> it's uh, what? It's it's Prince Johann the Good of Liechtenstein. Yeah, or just you know, a, a, like the, whoever the latest head of ISIS is. Oh, I see. Quasi-governmental groups. Yeah, I mean, I guess the new Land Cruisers are a lot nicer, but wow. The reason why Jim wrote to us was not to give us that fascinating fact, although I'm into that. He, in his opinion, the 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 successor, the modern true spiritual successor to the the Mercedes 600 is not the Maybach. No, he says it's the Volkswagen Phaeton. Oh, the Phaeton. Phaeton. So I looked for a Phaeton when you were shopping for cars. Yeah, for because they don't make them anymore. There's they're just a they only made them for a little while. They have a V10 motor. Right. That's the same V10 that is used in the Audis, the big V10 Audis, except it's tuned differently. It's like tuned more for um, going real fast on the highway and not like being fast from a stoplight. We owe the Phaeton to one Ferdinand Piech. Puch. Puch. I don't know how the vowels work here. Who is the famously hands-on... Some say megalomaniacal guy that took over VW in the, I don't know the time frame here, the 90s. He's responsible for, as you say, making Audi right. uh world-renowned luxury brand. Did he also saving lie, Volkswagen. lie about the diesel rabbit? Is he, that he, same guy? That might have been the same era as the VW emissions stuff. Um, but he, I guess he was behind all these kind of just crazy over-engineered cars. Like, you know, you would not have the crazy Bugattis that we've covered on the show without yeah. him. Um the reason for the Phaeton is that he specifically wanted a sedan that could travel 186 miles per hour all day in 122-degree weather while maintaining a 72-degree interior temperature. If you see a Phaeton in person, they are extremely impressive. They're huge. And it's funny because if you if you stand far enough away from it, it just looks like a – it's shaped like a Volkswagen. So it, it looks like a – Like a bug? No, no, no. But, <laughs> but like a Camry. Yeah. You know, it looks it, – it, it looks like a car. Passat. Yeah, Passat. But if you get a, as you get closer to it, you're like, this car is enormous. And then you, it, you think you're standing next to it, but then it just keeps, it keeps getting, getting bigger. And it's, you know, it, it's a wonderful vehicle. And the only downside is that he, in my opinion, the downside and the reason it didn't sell was he put a giant VW logo on it. Mm. And like the grocer, you know, the way the grocer had the Mercedes emblem that as you got closer, you realized, oh, they had to make a special one to look in scale. it's so big. The Volkswagen emblem on the front of the Phaeton is as big as a pie plate. <laughs> and what you realize <laughs> is this is a massive luxury car. If you have the money... And the wherewithal to buy a massive luxury car, you don't You're want not, it. You don't want it to have a Volkswagen. No, the 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 logo com, communicates people's car. It just Volkswagen. We we associate it with economy cars. And if he had just if he'd just done the um, what the Lexus thing right. and just created a new VW luxury brand, yeah, uh, I think that car would be an enormous hit. And I still I still look at them covetously. It's just that they're not. They, they didn't sell very many. Jim says that the Phaeton was so over-engineered that Volkswagen lost 28,000 euros for each one sold, <laughs> which is not what you want to do. Well done. But, uh, but at least uh, your name, the Volkswagen name became synonymous with luxury. 
Do you, briefly <laughs> for the 150 people who bought one. Now, do you want the footnote or the invitation? Footnote. Uh, this is from Dan. I can't believe we left this out. Um, he says, we missed an easy Mercedes 600 in pop culture. It's the limo used by, and this is a movie that's been on the omnibus at least twice. Jack Nicholson uh, in The Witches of Eastwick. Is that true? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> that's a movie that's never been on the omnibus because no one has ever seen it. He the, the the car features prominently in The Witches of Eastwick, and it's a killer. It, it's Because it's, he's Satan. That's what the devil yeah. would That's what the devil. It's would a ride. wonderful, wonderful car. Satan's Mercedes. This this is a very omnibus-specific movie. It's Eddie Murphy's limo in Trading Places. Oh, of course. Which we covered in the, what, the show about the onion, the guy cornering the onion market? Mr. Valentine set the price. Whatever that was. All right, and that means it's time for your invitation, John. Yeah, what's the invitation? Is it just for me or for us? It's just for you. Oh. Have you heard about a carpenter from Galilee named... No, I'm just kidding. That's not the invitation. <laughs> is it, uh, uh, did she play the drums? The invitation is from Harold in Minnesota. Okay. John says he's never driven a Porsche. If he ever makes it to St. Paul, he's welcome to take my Porsche for a spin. Oh, what kind of Porsche? That's what, okay. He wants you to, he wants you to be aware. He's like, it's a 914. It's a 944, not the oh, 911. I he's would drive a 944. That's okay. He's, he thinks you were hoping for the 911. Is it a 944 turbo? He's put a Ford V8 in it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm afraid that doesn't count. I do. I did get an invitation from a guy I know in who lives in Wenatchee who has a 928. Mm. And he said, look, man, you can come over to Wenatchee and drive my 928. And, uh, and I am considering going over and drive because the 928 is pretty hot. Pretty hot. I kind of want to drive a Taycan. Do you like them? The new EV? You're so into electric cars. Your your electric car is the most sinister one I've ever seen now that I've looked oh, sure. at it more, if, more if they times. made the Witches of Eastwick, if they do like a, a mini series of the Witches of Eastwick for A&E, the devil will be driving uh, an ele- a, a big looming electric car. For no, sure. but I, I don't know which one you're talking about. The Satan? Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Have you not seen this new e-Porsche? Nope. Look up the Taycan, T-A-Y-C-A-N. T-A-Y-C-A-N. It's an electric Porsche, you're saying? Yeah. Porsche. We, we, Porsche. Oh, yeah. You, we you, can, you don't like me saying Porsche on the show, do you? Uh, so say it again, T-A-Y-C-A-N. C-A-N, Taycan. The Porsche Taycan. I'm quiet, Taycan, with it. Oh. Oh. You don't like the look? Well, it's better than the the prior Porsche sedan, but I feel like under the bumper, it's got a little carve out that kind of makes it look like. Are you looking at a? Are you looking at it head on? Yeah, it kinda, yeah. I mean, a problem with EVs is they don't need a grill. So what do you do up there? Yeah, it kind of looks like it's got a little bit of a nose up posture, um, but otherwise. Porsche can't get away from the fact that the 911 is such an icon. Yeah. And so they keep trying to graft 911 bodywork onto these cars that don't have anything to do with a 911. And they should just leave it. Leave it. Oh, you know what looks good is the Taycan in all black. Mm. That's the one you want. Is it like that weird Elon Musk matte black or not? <laughs> no, it looks shiny. The The problem is that, oh, that the, 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 the grill under the bumper... On the other cars is black, and then the paint 
makes it kind of stand out in a weird way. But the all black one looks bad. I see what you're talking about with the little, it's got like, it's got a little lip or something sticking out. It looks like it's pouting. Yeah. Uh, You don't want a pouty Porsche. It, uh, I mean, it's going to accelerate faster than any gas engine Porsche. Well, sure. But that's, that that is true of like, that's true of a, like a gas, a Nissan Leaf. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) It can all go from zero to 60 in three seconds now. Because of torque, Ken. It's all torque. Torque. Entry 445.IS0526. Certificate number 43944. The fastest bicyclist. Where we uh, used the word torque <laughs> quite it, a bit. Was that the show where the torque came from? It wasn't in Der Grosser? Yeah. You, you, at, by the end of this show, you were like, look, man. I've heard torque too many times. I had a I have a pre-existing condition about the word torque because that's what car salesmen say when they try to sell you an EV. Torque. It's going to be all these Elon dorks talking torque. Uh, this was a show about the world's fastest bicyclist behind a what do you say behind a lead vehicle, but you know in the in the slipstream of a that's what you would say of a lead vehicle. I don't know how that distinguishes the record. The twist is that it's a a woman. Like a woman our age, I think, mm-hmm. um, who now has the world record, and and it will be hard to beat that world record because she exceeded all expectations. She went like a hundred and eighty something miles an hour. Mm-hmm. The male record is now, I think, one seventy four, and we got a note here from the holder of that record who <laughs> disputes her championship. He is one hundred and seventy four years old. Uh, we got a note from Ellis who sent us a link to a, some kind of a cycling. Oh, first of all, he says, um, this is the first time he's listened to an omnibus that, um, oh no, is this not him? Somebody said they listened to an entry about someone they knew something about and we got all the facts right, but maybe that wasn't, maybe that wasn't him. (laughs) I don't want to put words in your mouth, Ellis. I just liked seeing it because usually it's the opposite. But Ellis said, uh, he sent us a link to this YouTube channel where they're talking to the the guy who just set the male record. Uh Because this is now a case where there's an overall record and then a male record. Yeah, I like it. Uh, It's He's on a bike called the Silver Eagle by Moss Cycles. And they interview the Moss Cycle. It's got a weird elongated look. I assume it looks more or less like the the one that the record holder did it wherever she did it. Bonneville? Her, her bike is really unusual looking. You know, it's very long and it has not super big tires. So it kind of looks like a dirt bike that's been stretched really far. I mean, you can see why they want it built like a dirt bike because any little thing that goes wrong at that speed and you die. Yeah. You know, if you're going 170, 180 miles an hour on a bicycle. Yeah. There's a reason why most people don't don't do that. Um, anyway, this uh, this guy recently set the men's record, which I think is 174, and they have he's going to try for the record. Apparently, he uh, he thinks he can get above 200. Whoa! With some tweaks, and the problem is um, this is something about the, the way this particular fairing of this Moss Cycles bike is designed. If it's going behind a lead vehicle and the the video has them going behind like this sedan looking car, so I don't really know what they're using. It's not a it's not a big dragster at car. all. Okay, um, two hundred mile sedan maybe. It's I a guess is Porsche it a Torque? Is it, is it a Phaeton? <laughs> <laughs> but Ella says that for some aerodynamic reason I don't understand. The the cyclist gets a boost at one hundred and fifty miles per hour. But the boost is such that you can just ram into the bumper of the lead car if you're not careful. Like, you can actually receive a boost that will push you faster than the vehicle you're following. It's some kind of sonic 
boom or is it uh it th- that's where they switch gears would it be a, sonic 150? at 150 i don't know what the i'm trying to think what the it wouldn't be a sonic boom what the constant or natural limit would be there i feel like it it might be you know the way the the gears work might be that that's where you reach the natural limit of the first crank and you have to get to the next crank and you're I mean, he kind of implied it was an aerodynamic, aerodynamic phenomenon and not a gearing one, but but I don't know. But I guess in this case, when they're testing it, the bike smashed into the lead car so hard that oh, it boy. dented the the ram bar in front of the bicycle. And, and again, it didn't crash. didn't crash. But again, that's not what you want to be doing at 150, 200 miles an hour. No, can you imagine being on that bike and hitting the car in front of you and staying up? Because suddenly you just get a Mario uh, turbo like, like, thing, a, a, a turtle shell or whatever. Whoa. Crazy. Terrifying. And two different people wrote in to speculate on middle-aged fitness and how that plays into this story. Oh, tell me more about middle-aged fitness. I'm I know, curious. You're, you're already an expert. <laughs> uh, you know, a listener named Mitchie was just kind of speculating on you know what the, the hormonal balance of people at different ages and, oh, and uh-huh. how that might lead to you know quick. Uh, what's it called? The quick. Re- what are the recovery. fast muscles? Yeah. You know, versus the long endurance the kind. Snaps. Not my field. But I enjoyed a note we got from Tess, who is a... Always love someone named Tess. Who is a... Yeah, no bad Tesses. Mm-mm. Who is a marathoner uh, at 40, done 20 marathons and 50Ks. Wow. That's a lot. And her, this is very funny to me. Her speculation is that middle age is perfect for this kind of thing for psychological and emotional reasons. A young person has not yet built up enough tolerance for pain and boredom to run a marathon. <laughs> and you're past the point where you have any reason to keep living. That's so right. So you might as well just <laughs> tough it out. Like, it's so funny that a young person would just be like, this really sucks. Whereas a middle-aged person is going to be like, this really sucks, but so does so much else in my life yeah. at you this know, point. Childbirth was no big right. shakes either. It's not like my job is so awesome or, you know, it's not like my marriage is great. So, <laughs> right. So maybe that is the secret sauce to uh, yeah. to middle-aged people, and particularly women holding this record. After 35 years of sitting in church every Sunday, you're like, yeah, it's not getting any better. <laughs> Entry 1421.DE2609. Certificate number 53240. Welsh Patagonia. Did we hear from a lot of angry Welsh? Well, a couple Philadelphia area people. Oh. In passing, you referred to this... Um, this band of, uh, I think, fairly affluent suburbs with Welsh names yeah. as the High Line. Yeah. Which uh, maybe you're confusing with the New pa- York Park City and Park. Chelsea. Yeah. What's it called? The it's Main called Line. The Main Line. Oh, yeah. I and thought it, I said Main Line. And it, well, yeah, you were just you just mixed up two different Northeast places. It's named yeah. for the old railroad right. Main Line that used to go through there. And apparently, one thing that uh, either Brian or Rachel pointed out is that uh, the Welsh names had such prestige that communities would try to get Welsh names because it would, you know, make them sound like a nicer suburb. Like Bryn Mawr was, it was Humphreysville. And then someone was like, you know, Bryn Mawr sounds much classier. It sure does. Which is funny because in the UK, I don't think Welshness conveys any kind of old money uh, power or old world charm or anything. No. You know, it's not like London is going to, some suburb of London is not going to, Call you itself know, Bryn Mawr. Yeah, Hounsley is not going to change its name to Bryn Mawr because it sounds more, uh, no, more uh, prestigious. No, but that did happen in Pennsylvania. Not at all. Apparently, 
We also got a poem about the Welsh that somebody sent us off a off a tea towel. Do you want to hear? Do you want to hear a poem from the tea towel? Of course I do. Matt in Canada thinks this is um, pretty funny. This is the type of thing that you find in Canada: a tea towel with a poem about Wales. This could be the funniest thing in Canada. <laughs> there were the Scots who kept the Sabbath and everything else they could lay their hands on. Ooh. Oh, shots fired! <laughs> Ouch! Scots are thrifty. <laughs> then there were the Welsh who prayed on their knees. And on their neighbors. Okay. I have to admit, I didn't get the joke, and Matt's like, it's prayed like EY. Yeah. And I was like, oh, right. They prayed on their neighbors? Ouch. I feel like the other two don't have the same. Those have nice little turns. The other two are a little bit of a stretch. Thirdly, there were the Irish. Uh, Maybe it's implying God created them in this order. Uh Thirdly, there were the Irish who never knew what they were fighting for, but but were willing to fight for it anyway. Yeah. So they're just They're just drunks. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Lastly, there were the English who considered themselves a self-made nation, thus relieving the Almighty of a dreadful responsibility. Oh, oh, oh come on. Burn. Come on. That's kind of a sweet-natured burn, though, but the rest of them are kind of gnarly. Those, it does seem like kind of the, the old-timey uh, way of making fun of people is to be like, the English are so full of themselves. The Scots are thrifty. <laughs> and the Welsh are predators. <laughs> yeah. The Welsh murdered people. <laughs> what was the Scottish? Oh, right. The Scottish are just thrifty. Yeah. Although that can be a pernicious stereotype, too. Th- I mean, thrifty and religious. But if that were a joke about like a Jewish population, we wouldn't be like, ha ha ha. We'd be like, hey. Yeah. But because nothing bad has ever happened to the Scots for being penny pinchers. Mm, a lot of them got exported to West Virginia. That was bad for everybody. <laughs> they had it coming. So it, isn't it time for an Esowit update? How's we, our little elephant doing? We've already been we've always been ending with our adopted elephant. I, we got an email um, from the Sheldrick Wildlife Trust, which is funny because it's their end of year thing, which makes it sound exactly like the Christmas letters I get from my wife's friends, uh-huh. where it's like, "Well, uh, little uh, <laughs> Tad had to do the seventh grade again, or whatever." <laughs> but uh, you know, we're really adjusting to our new blah blah blah, and it's ex- it's exactly. Like that. Laro is a wonderful matriarch. Naleko seems to be her natural successor. Kindani, it's, you know. Yeah. This year. I'm going to actually put that in our next Christmas card. My mother is a wonderful matriarch. (laughs) (laughs) My daughter looks like she's on her way. Who's her natural successor? Uh, And I was looking for updates on our boy, Esowitz. There was a pretty good story here. Here we go. Esowit was in a playful mood on the morning of December 28th of last year. So Esowit. But he was feeling far more energetic than his peers, and nobody else wanted to play. Oh. We've we've all been there, haven't we? I guess so. He kept chasing after Mukatan and Tabu as he wanted to climb on their backs. The keepers kept telling him off, but after a couple minutes, he would start again. Naleku noticed his behavior and was very unimpressed. As Esowit was charging around the mud bath, he didn't realize that he was about to run straight past Kario. Naleku immediately shoved Esowit away and chased after him. Well, Esowit's kind of a troublemaker in he this story. Is. We knew that. The keepers had to step in to defuse the situation, but it was a good lesson for Esowit in not pushing the limits. Mm. After this, he was very calm and went to browse near Tabu. Uh, See, Esowit craves craves boundaries and discipline. He does. He wants he wants there to be order. He wants the rules to be known, knowable. And now he's not going to try uh, mounting games with. Mukutan and Tabu, we'll which see. again, I think they should have a zero tolerance policy. We'll see what he does. Like if any of my kids' schools had uh, mounting games, mm. then they, that, that, that kid wouldn't come back. Yeah, but I mean, it was a major plot point in Anti Mame. 
And that concludes Omnibus Addenda, Volume 27. Futurelings, we thank you for your financial pledges that have made this monumental project possible. We hope that access to these important addenda items has validated your decision to support the Omnibus. It is vitally important that you attach these updates to the original recordings you discovered in their proper context for the convenience of future browsing by your civilization. We hope that our civilization survives long enough for us to provide you with future addenda to the Omnibus.